Well, I want to start by asking you all the question, what kinds of messages do you listen to? What kinds of messages do you listen to? I'm not necessarily talking about the latest voicemail that you heard on your phone or a voice text that maybe you received from your friend, but I'm asking whose counsel are you hearing and believing? What messages are you buying? The latest TV series that you watched, what did it tell you about truth and goodness and beauty? Your podcast lineup, the people you follow on social media, what vision of the good life are they selling you? The news outlets you frequent, the influencers that you may follow, the friends that you surround yourself with. How are they telling you to view the world around you? What kind of counsel are they giving you? You should look this way. The good life is found here. Your house isn't organized enough, clean enough, big enough. Be the authentic you. You are the most important person in your life. Do any of those sound familiar? Well, you know, the typical person hears 20 to 30,000 words in a day. And none of those words that we hear are neutral. We choose to surround ourselves with many of the words that we hear, and all of those words affect us. They shape us. They guide us. They mold our hearts in some way, whether we realize it or not. The messages that we choose to listen to will shape our hearts. And so the question is, what kind of messages are you listening to? That's the question that Proverbs asks us as we come to that book this morning. If I invite you to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 4, which is where we'll be this morning. We plan to be in Verses 20 through 27. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20 through 27. Now the book, you might know, is written by King Solomon. King Solomon served as the king of Israel. He was the son of David. And Solomon opens his book with the series of ten different appeals to his sons. They are heartfelt, earnest words of encouragement, as well as warning when it comes to considering the way of wisdom and the way of folly. So, so Solomon, perfectly aware of the onslaught of messages that his son would face, calls his son to hear and to heed his word as reflected and reflecting 
God's word given to him as taught to him by his father. You know, we remember also that the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel back in their history, they're rescued out of uh, the land of slavery in Egypt by God. They're redeemed to be a people for his own possession. And now Israel's being called to belong to this holy God. As they belong to this holy God, they're called to be a holy people. They're to walk as his holy son, a holy nation. So God graciously gives his nation of Israel the law through Moses And then he tells them through the law, essentially what he looks like. The people of Israel and the king of Israel were then to pass on this law, these stories of salvation and these words of wisdom and primarily to pass them down to their children. What's in our passage this morning that we sort of get this front row glimpse into this passing on of the baton. The, the passing down these stories of salvation and these words of wisdom. Solomon's instruction for his own son. And the passage paints a picture of what it means to live wisely. So our passage this morning is the seventh appeal in a series of ten appeals. And contains some verses that might be well familiar to you. So... I'll read, begin reading in verse 20 and read all the way through 27 and then we'll unpack that together. Proverbs chapter 4. My son, be attentive to my words and incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet and then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Well, if you could boil this passage down into sort of one main idea, I think it would go something like this. Guard your heart above all else and in every way. Guard your heart above all else and in every way. We'll kind of take that in two parts this morning. First part, the motivation to guard your heart. Part two, the methods. In guarding your heart. But motivation first is where we'll be. I want you to look to verse 23 with me. Again, this is where we'll start. And we come to verse 23. We'll go back to the beginning verses soon. But I think we start with verse 23 because this is where the emphasis of the passage lies. King Solomon gives this series of urges telling his son to hear his words in his first three verses. But then he climaxes with this call to his son saying to keep your heart with all vigilance. Because it's there that flow the springs of life. So Solomon realizes that if we or his sons are to have any kind of motivation to guard our hearts, 
we need to answer the question first, what exactly are we guarding? And why? So what exactly does Solomon mean when he tells us to guard our heart? And why should we guard it? You know, in today's typical use of the word heart, people will often sort of substitute it for something like emotion or, or a feeling. They'll, in using the word, they'll you know, think about maybe some decision that they made out of this kind of emotionally um, rash way, and then they'll reflect on that later and say, you know, I, I made that decision with my heart. I, I wasn't thinking. But that's not exactly the way that the Bible uses the word heart. You know, in fact, there's a lot of talk about the heart in the Bible and its importance to our walk with the Lord. You know, it's not just a book of Proverbs thing that talks about the heart. It's not just a New Testament or Jesus thing. It's a whole Bible thing. The heart, according to the scriptures, is monumentally important. The heart, as talked about in the scriptures, refers to to one's innermost being. It, It doesn't simply speak to what somebody does. It doesn't simply speak to the emotions a person might have. But but when the authors of the Bible talk about the heart, they're, they're getting down to the question of why did that person do the thing that they did? According to the scriptures, the heart is the, the central command center for everything that we do in our life. It's, it's what guides our motivations. It's the values, the beliefs that hold us to our very core. What we prize and what we value and treasure most. Which is why Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So our heart is its far more than an emotion. Because what's in our heart is what we most value and love. As what uh, one theologian puts it, the heart is the seat of the affections. Now, to get to the heart, you have to address the mind. And the heart will ultimately show itself in emotions. But the heart isn't the same thing as emotion. The heart isn't void of thinking. The heart is the very core, then, the ultimate sort of motivational structures of one's life. Or, as Solomon poetically puts it here, from the heart flow the springs of one's life. So, so everything then that we think, that we say, that we do in one way or another proceeds from our hearts. Your internal and external dialogue. What you give your time and energy to. The way you choose to spend your money. The voices that you choose to listen to and the ones that you choose to disregard. 
They all spring from your heart. Now, once we start to understand the true meaning of what the heart really is, that's when the priority of guarding our heart becomes crystal clear. The command here is to keep your heart with all vigilance. Because Solomon wants us to understand your heart is valuable. We're called to keep it above all else, as some translations would render it. Well, my question for you is, how are you doing at guarding your own heart recently? Is that your primary concern? You know, when the sink is overflowing with dirty dishes and the family schedule is full, does your heart stay a top priority? When you need to work overtime and you don't know how the budget is going to work this month, is your heart still priority? When you feel like somebody has sinned against you and you are convinced that they were absolutely wrong. Does your heart remain a priority in how you conduct yourself? Because here's the deal, y'all. Our hearts, while they are valuable, are also vulnerable. We are prone to reprioritize outward appearances over inward realities. How, 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 does, how does this happen? Well, have you ever been on the verge of snapping because you're trying to get your house ready? Church friends are coming over, but you're ridden with angst because you don't want to see, you don't want them to see the place the way that it is. Or maybe you're more like me and you tend to prioritize promptness so much so that you snap at your family on your way out the door. Y'all, we get preoccupied with the ways that we think someone else wronged us in a conflict. And then we start to ignore that we're harboring bitterness and resentment in our own heart. You know, since getting three, getting two, three young children, there's no shortage of work for us to do in our house. Housekeeping, it feels like it's, it's always happening. It's a constant thing. You turn your back for one second and then you've got a pile of dirty laundry. Or a pile of clean laundry to fold. You've got rooms of toys to pick up. You've got Baby wipes that were there and have suddenly vanished. Housework and heartwork are similar in a way. There's always work to be done. And if you turn your back on your heart, sin easily creeps in. Spiritual filth accumulates quickly. Bad habits start to take over. 
external as well as internal housekeeping requires our constant vigilant work. You know, I've heard it said before that nobody drifts towards holiness. And so it is with keeping our hearts. Our heart doesn't just drift towards looking more like Jesus. It doesn't work like that. Your heart needs to be plowed with the Word of God. It needs to be tilled with corporate prayer. It needs to be cultivated with confessing sin. It needs to be watered with fresh gospel community. It needs to be fertilized with the preached Word of God. And then as those truths are pressed in by God's grace and by God's help and by God's Spirit, growth comes. Fruit starts to emerge. So you see that the Bible talks about the condition of our heart being one of the most important things about us spiritually. But the scriptures are also clear that our hearts, as we read earlier, are, are not naturally good. We were made to have good hearts. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled in the garden. They brought sin into the world and that has corrupted everything. Because of them, we are born into sin. You know, it's, it's easy to think about how everything out there in the world is corrupt. It's easy to see that. What's harder to see, and what we don't often take the time to see, is the corruption that's inside. The corruption that's internal. That takes spiritual eyes to see. You know, think about how radical that answer is for a moment. The answer to what's gone wrong in the world being sin. And that sin ultimately comes from your heart. You're not going to find that message anywhere else but here. But once we get that answer right, it frees us to find a true solution. It, it frees us because if the problem is internal, we then are no longer enslaved to thinking about looking for the solution inside of ourselves. We're, we're freed to realize that the problem is internal and the solution is external. The, the solution is outside of me. And according to God's word, our problem is not found outside of us. Our problem is found inside of us. And we need the solution to be outside of us. We need the solution of the good news of Jesus Christ. He was the one who put on flesh because it was his heart to do his father's will. He was the one whose heart was always pure. Even though he was tempted like we are. 
It was him whose heart remained steadfast, resolved to obey, even though it meant that he would suffer and die on the cross in the place of sinners like you and me. And then it was his heart that began beating three days later. Because death had no power over a perfect man. The powerful working of God raised his son. And it's that same resurrection power then that Christ now gives to his people. We who once had bad hearts can now say, I'm not good enough. I am not enough. My heart isn't good. I know that I need cleansing that I can't provide for myself. I need cleansing that only one person can provide for me. And that's Jesus Christ, his perfect righteousness. I need his cleansing, please. And it's that resurrection power that Jesus gives. When he gives his people a new heart. A dead, stony, cold, unresponsive, sin ridden, depraved heart is given new life. And faith and repentance and breath and new life and new eyes emerge from that glorious transfer. And we then now have a sensitivity to God's commands. We don't hate what he loves. We don't hate what he loves anymore, but we love what he loves. We hate what he hates. We have a sensitivity to his word. We want to do it. We want to hear it. We want to learn from it. Which is why God's word says for all those who are in Christ, they are new creations. The old has passed away. And the new has come. Well, let me ask you. Do you know that you have a new heart because the Holy Spirit has changed you? Do you know that you have a new heart because the Holy Spirit has changed you? You know, that is the difference between name only Christianity and true biblical Christianity. True Christianity flows out of a changed and transformed heart by the power of Jesus. Name only Christianity knows Jesus like you know a Facebook friend. Sure, you know where they were last week. Sure, you kind of know their whereabouts. Sure, you kind of know a few facts about that person. But you don't have a knowledge and a knowing that changes you. That only comes by the power of God's Spirit dwelling inside of you. Well, once we understand the value of our heart, how vulnerable it is, then we find the motivation to guard our heart above all else. But we can't stop there. A resolve to guard your heart above all else isn't enough. We need more than simply kind of strengthened resolve if we're going to walk in wisdom faithfully. It'd be like if you woke up one day and you decided, I want to be a doctor. Well, that desire to be a doctor, that's great. That doesn't make you a doctor. right? 
you need to be trained. You need to learn the how-tos, right? So the desire is good. That gets us going. But we need to learn the, the methods, the strategy. We need to be trained in knowing how to grow as Christians. So point two, the methods to guarding your heart. Let's go back to the very first verse, verse 20. And we'll work from there. My son, be attentive to my words and incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. They are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. So when we go back to the beginning of our passage, Solomon is calling his son in in a number of different ways to hear his words and to hold on to his words, to to hide them in his heart. And, And then he explains why. And, and as he explains why, I don't know about you, but this was a little surprising to me as I was studying. You know, think about a father and mother today as they're addressing their children. And their child's about to do something that's not right. And the father says, hey, you need to listen to me because my words are life and healing. I don't know about you. That strikes me as a bit overconfident. At least it did at first. But what we need to remember here is that Solomon is not just sort of spouting off a bunch of his own original ideas. Instead, what Solomon is doing is he's taking the word of God, thinking about how does this word apply to every area of life, And then he's giving his son practical instruction. Shoe leather wisdom grounded on the word of God. So these appeals by Solomon are all grounded in God's word. That's why Solomon can say here that my words are life and healing. Insofar as they capture and convey what's consistent with the word of God itself. And and notice all of the senses that he starts to enlist here. He he doesn't just say, put your listening ears on. He he also says to to keep your eyes on my words. He's going to say, press those words into where? Your heart. There it is again. In other words, drawing on what we know from the heart earlier... Press my word, keep my word in the deepest recesses, the innermost being of your person. So according to Solomon in this passage, God's word isn't something that you merely just hold on to. Ultimately, it's what should hold on to you. It ought to control you from the inside out. And that's one of the first ways that we guard our heart. We store God's life-giving word in our heart. Well, why do we start here? You know, if you think about it, drawing on the experience of housekeeping earlier, you know, when mud starts getting tracked through the house and kids are drawing on your walls, milk gets spilled on the carpet and 
You're waking up in the middle of the night to clean up various bodily fluids. You know, you don't just clean all of that stuff up with water, do you? Why not? Doesn't work. You need something powerful. You need something that will actually get the stuff out. Remove the filth, right? You need something powerful. Well, what can clean your heart? Nothing you can will or muster. Nothing you can buy. Nothing in your own ability. But all of your heart's cleansing comes from dependence upon the Word of God and the Spirit of God. The, the, the watery rag of willpower and self-determination doesn't give you the power that you need for growing in holiness. The, the wet towel of turning over a new leaf for the new year. That doesn't stand a chance against ingrained sinful tendencies. You need God's Word in full strength. You need God's Spirit to give you the power. Which is why we pray, God, give me help. By your spirit, help me to put to death the ways of the flesh. But this call also that Solomon gives here, there's this call to be attentive and to keep his words in his heart. You know, it's it's not just simply this passive reading, is it? There, there's a there's an activeness that's assumed in the way that Solomon calls his son to ingest the word. And, and here's where I want to suggest that one of the best ways that you can ensure the word of God is kept in your heart is by meditating on and memorizing the word of God. Meditating on and memorizing the word. Now, I'm not sure if you have found this to be true. I have for my own life. But oftentimes in devotional readings, you know, you'll open up your passage in the morning, you'll read through it, and then the day kind of gets moving. And if somebody were to ask me later that day, like, hey, Johnny, what did you read this morning? The Bible, I know that. I think I was in Matthew. Yeah. It, it just kind of feels like water through a pipe. Well, here's something that you can try. After you read a passage of Scripture, just take one verse. Take one verse from the passage. Write it down on a note card. Or sit right there. Just try to memorize it. Word after word after word. Right there, one verse. Memorize it, write it down, keep it before you. That would be just one practical way to sort of live out this very instruction that Solomon gives his son. Keep my words before you. Have it on a card. You don't have to get it perfect, but that's one way that the word quite literally gets pushed into our hearts, kept in front of our eyes. You know, how do you 
drink tea. For any tea drinkers out there. This is true for coffee too. You know, you don't just dip a tea bag in the water, pull it right out, and then think that you've got tea, right? The, the bag needs to stay. It, it needs to steep in the water. Same for coffee. Well, it's the same with the Word of God. You know, if we're just there in front of it in a flash and then gone, we, we, we instead need, need the steeping effect. Where it then colors and adds flavor to our lives. Where then, after sitting there, we start to see the color in which God's Word sees the world. You know, are you struggling to have your heart warm towards the things of the Lord? Meditating and memorizing God's Word can actually help you with that. You know, when you come into your house on a sub-freezing day, how do you get warm? Well, it's not by rushing past the fire in the living room. You come into the living room, you sit yourself down in front of the fire. And then, that's when the fingers start to warm. That's when eventually you feel warm down to your bones. What's well, the same with God's Word? When we sit ourselves before it, when we linger, when we hold ourselves before it, when we keep our eyes fixed upon it and press it deep into our hearts, that's when its truths start to grab us, start to seize us. Well, how else do we do this? Say so you're doing it right now. You're here because at least I think that you want to hear God's word preached. You want to get your heart full with his word and his promises. You want to depend upon his grace more. You know, and if you're here on Sunday mornings, that is actually the starting place to doing what Solomon's commanding here well. Because what it does is it sets you up for the rest of the week. You have a springboard for conversations with one another now. You can ask somebody, hey, how did that sermon help you this week? You can ask, hey, can you pray for me? I really want to grow in keeping God's word in my heart. You know, it could be as simple as just a text chain with some friends where you send passages of Scripture to one another. Say that you're praying those truths for them that day. You can ask each other, hey, why don't we read the passage that we're about to hear this Sunday together? Those are all great word, ways to continue to do this, to press His Word into your heart. Well, as we think about guarding our hearts above all else, the Word of God, one of the most powerful weapons we have in the arsenal. But that's not the only way. Solomon tells us to guard our hearts here, secondly, by putting away crooked speech. Verse 24, put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. You know, it's interesting that right after telling us to guard our heart, immediately afterwards, Solomon says, Watch how you talk. You know, you might read that. And you might kind of think, man, you know, I was 
I was resonating with Solomon there. He was kind of speaking my language. He's talking about the heart. That's the only thing that matters. And then he just goes on and gets kind of like rules oriented and legalistic, talking about how we talk. Isn't the heart really the only thing that matters? But y'all, the heart isn't the only thing that matters. Because it's not the only thing that Solomon mentions. When it comes to walking with the Lord, keeping the heart is the priority. But it's not the only thing that we watch. And truthfully, watching how we talk, what comes out of our mouths, is a way that we do guard our heart. It's Jesus who told us, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know, we've all heard it. Many of us have probably said it. In the heat of conflict, we say hurtful words to somebody and then we immediately follow it up with, I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. But according to Jesus, most of the time, We actually did mean that. And you know, it's actually better for us to own that and to take responsibility for the words that came out of our mouth, the words that we just said, to ask forgiveness from the Lord, to ask forgiveness from the other person that we've wronged, than to just deny it. So do you want to know what's in your heart? Well, think about what you say to others. What topics do you frequent? What things do you find yourself coming back to? Is there anything that needs to change in that pattern? And the spirit of this command is it's not simply that we merely just stay away from curse words. It's not just merely avoiding gossip. But we also embrace the flip side of this truth. We want to be those who, as as Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, that speak words that, that build up, that fit the occasion, that give grace to those who hear. That's a that's a great grid to run your words through every time before you speak them. Do these words fit the occasion? Do these words aim to give grace? Do these words build up? Well, why does this matter? Well, because we worship a God who speaks. Our speaking God ministers to us with life-giving, grace-giving, time-appropriate, edifying words. And as His sons, we want to speak like He speaks. So we watch how we speak because it affects our hearts. It's kind of like if you want to get in shape. You know, there's things that you need to start doing. Then there's things that you need to stop doing. So you need to put certain things into your life. Regular exercise, running, strength and conditioning, stretching, good sleep. But then there's things you need to take out of your life too, right? 
late night snacks and sweets, sugary drinks. Getting in shape isn't this sort of either or approach, but it's a it's a both and approach. What's the same with our spiritual growth? Yes, we prioritize the heart, but the heart isn't the only thing that matters. We pay attention not only to what we put on, but also what we must put off with God's help. So we've seen thus far that we got our heart, number one, by keeping God's word in our heart. Number two, by watching our tongue. Finally, number three, fixing our gaze, considering our path. Our last verses, verse 25. Let your eyes look directly forward. Your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left, but turn your foot away from evil. You know, sometimes we find ourselves in bad habits, sinful attitudes, not necessarily because we have these just outright devious thoughts, wicked intentions, but because we've lost sight of where we're going. We've forgotten our mission. We've forgotten the Lord's calling on our life. We've grown sluggish or distracted. And it's kind of like when you're on the highway and you see a wreck on the side of the road. You kind of want to look. If you do look, as soon as you look back, you're, you're outside of the mustard and mayonnaise, right? You've gotten in the wrong lane. Well, it's easy for that to happen in our lives. We get distracted. We grow weary. We don't have our eyes fixed directly before us. For all my lawnmowers out there, how do you mow the straightest line? It's not by looking down. You find the spot in front of you and you mow a straight line as you walk. Well, the writer is making the same point here. The way you finish the race is by fixing your gaze. The way to get the prize is by setting your eyes. Look in front of you. Keep the hope of Christ before you. Consider the one who went before you. As the author of Hebrews puts it, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus. The author the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorned its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God on high. How did Jesus walk the path that we walk? How did Jesus remain steadfast as he traveled his road to Calvary? As he stared death in the face, as he took on the wrath of God in full strength for the sake of his people. It was the joy that was set before him. 
the joy that was set before him. And y'all, that same joy is set before us. We can endure as he did. For the joy that was set before us, we can lay aside the weights and the sin that so easily entangles. For the joy that's set before us, we can run the race with endurance. For the joy that's set before us, we can say no to the immediate gratifications of the flesh for that eternal reward that we know will never end. And y'all, one day we will see him. And we will be like him. And we will be with him. And that will be enough. May he grow us in our longing for that day. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray to you and ask that you would give us a new resolve to guard our heart, to prioritize keeping and tending our heart, to keep our vision, our gaze fixed on our Lord Jesus. And Father, would we consider the joy set before us? Strengthen our hands. Help us to not grow weary in doing good. Help us to know the promise that there will be good for us if we do not go give up. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.